Search teams say they've detected underwater noises in their search for the missing submersible in the Atlantic with five people on board. It's Wednesday, June 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the latest on the search. Locating the vehicle might be tough, even if it comes to the surface. The waves are six feet high, it's all white caps. The sub itself is white. I don't know how an airplane is going to find it in hundreds of miles of, of rough seas. Also, eviction rates nationwide have soared since pandemic-era protections ended. And this hour, the call for everyone under 65 to be screened for anxiety and depression. The rates of both are being driven up by the pandemic and the opioid crisis. In sports, the Red Sox win their sixth in a row. Fog and clouds give way to sun today around 70. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. is offering Ukraine a fresh tranche of aid. It's worth $1.3 billion. Blinken is in London, attending an international conference aimed at raising money to help Ukraine rebuild from the war. Recovery is about laying the foundation for Ukraine to thrive as a secure, independent country, fully integrated with Europe connected to markets around the world. Scores of business leaders are also at the conference seeking ways to invest in Ukraine as it fights Russia's invasion. Searchers continue to look for a missing submersible in the North Atlantic Ocean. A Canadian surveillance plane said it detected underwater noises, but nothing's been found. The missing submersible could run out of oxygen by tomorrow. Five people are aboard. A busy section of a Trans-Canada highway just east of Toronto has been closed in both directions. That's after a huge collision and explosion that left at least two people dead. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, police say burning fuel spilled on both sides of the highway. Ontario Provincial Police say multiple vehicles, including at least one tanker truck, were involved in the collision that sparked the fire. Explosions were also heard. Video from the Ontario Ministry of Transportation cameras as well as social media posts show towering flames and thick black smoke. Several witnesses report having heard explosions at the scene. Some motorists report a tanker truck rollover as well as the fuel spill. The crash took place on the 401 highway just before 11 p.m. near the city of Pickering, east of Toronto. Police have closed the highway as crews work to bring the fire under control and have warned people to keep their windows and doors closed because of the smoke. Police have not given a reason for the accident. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. A lawyer who argued unsuccessfully before the U.S. Supreme Court in a landmark abortion case has been confirmed as a federal judge. NPR's Sarah McCammon reports the U.S. Senate has approved Julie Rickleman's nomination to the U.S. First Circuit Court of Appeals. Julie Rickleman was the lead attorney who argued before the Supreme Court on behalf of a clinic that challenged Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. During oral arguments in December 2021, Rickleman warned of what would happen if the justices reversed decades of abortion rights precedent. States will rush to ban abortion at virtually any point in pregnancy. Mississippi itself has a six-week ban that it's defending with very similar arguments as it's using to defend the 15-week ban. One year ago this week, the court issued its Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization decision, allowing more than a dozen states to implement near-total abortion bans. President Biden announced Rickleman's nomination to the federal judiciary the following month. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to NPR News 
from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. More now on the search for that missing submersible in the North Atlantic. The Coast Guard in Boston is coordinating the search. WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports the Coast Guard says underwater noises were detected by Canadian search planes overnight. They've since sent in remote-operated underwater vehicles to explore the origin of the noises. Those ROVs haven't found anything yet, but the search continues this morning. Coast Guard officials say U.S. and Canadian planes and ships are combing a patch of water about the size of Connecticut. And they estimate that the submersible, if intact, has about a day's worth of oxygen left. Five people are inside that vehicle. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret documents is set to appear in federal court in Worcester today. Last week, a grand jury indicted Jack Teixeira on six counts of taking and transmitting classified information. Each of those charges carries up to a 10-year prison sentence. Teixeira has been held in a Plymouth County jail since he was arrested back in April. Officials who manage the region's energy grid say they're more optimistic about the system's reliability over the next few years. But as Mara Haplamazian reports, there are still big problems to solve. At their last meeting in September, the region's grid operator issued a warning that keeping the lights on over the winter could be hard, especially given the region's dependence on natural gas. Now, they say the grid's reliability issues should be manageable in the next few years. One big change is a new tool they're using to look at future weather scenarios. Ann George is with the grid operator. She says the new tool takes into account developments like more solar panels and new offshore wind on the system. How much risk can you live with in the system? And so that's the tool, is that you see the the types of scenarios that will result in risk, and then which ones do you want to try to mitigate. George says the grid operator will continue conversations with energy stakeholders on that question as more renewables come online. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. Today is the first official day of summer, and Massachusetts institutions are celebrating the longest day of the year today. UMass Amherst plans to mark the summer solstice with events at the school's Sunwheel. That's a solar calendar and observatory on campus. Steve Schneider is an astronomy professor at UMass. He says people who attend will learn how the Sunwheel works and what causes the solstice. It's also just a reminder. I, I just think watching the passing of the seasons from a spot like that, you, you sort of connect more with how the, the cycles of Earth uh, play into uh, all the features of our own lives. Summer officially begins this morning at 10.57. Right now, it's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel, mybioheat.com. And Loomis Sales, where portfolio managers, research analysts, and traders work together to help clients reach their financial goals. Learn more at LoomisSales.com. The Red Sox have now won six in a row. They beat the Twins 10-4 to last night in Minneapolis. Despite their winning streak, the Sox still remain in last place in the AL East. There are 11 games behind the first-place Rays, but only one-and-a-half games out of the wild-card spot. Some morning fog and clouds will eventually give way to sunshine. It'll be around 70, partly cloudy overnight and in the 50s, partly sunny tomorrow and in the lower 70s. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Mohn, 
thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The Coast Guard says rescuers heard some kind of underwater noise while trying to find a missing submersible in the North Atlantic. That's the first positive sign so far from the international search for the vessel that set off on Sunday to view the Titanic. Coast Guard Captain Jamie Frederick told reporters the five people aboard may be running low on oxygen. It's a unique operation. It's a challenging operation. But right now we're focused on putting everything we can at it and searching as hard as we can and getting the assets out there as quickly as we can. Those assets include ships, planes, and sonar probes dropped into the sea. Terry Virts has a friend on the Titan. Virts is a retired Air Force colonel and NASA astronaut. Uh, colonel, do you know how your friend uh, Hamish Harding came to be on this submersible? Well, Hamish is an explorer by nature, and uh, this just is the kind of thing that he would want to do. And um, he, uh, I guess, you know, looked for the company that does this. Uh, the, the and this is basically it. If you want to go to the Titanic, this is probably how you're going to get there. So um, I think there was not a lot of other options yeah. for him. A couple of days ago, you tweeted, it was good news we haven't heard any catastrophic sounds on sonar. What sounds would have been bad news? Well, sonar can pick up, you know, a crushing sound or an explosion. Um, And I, you know, I'm not directly involved in the um, rescue effort, so I can't say exactly what they've seen and exactly what the latest is. But the, the really good news, and this was just a few hours ago that this was reported, CNN, I think, broke the story. Um... Uh, they they read some government documents. I'm not sure how that they had been hearing this banging noise apparently every 30 minutes, and that's how the son- that's how the rescue operation is probably going to find the folks just taking a wrench and banging on the wall. That sound can travel through the ocean, so that was encouraging. They were they were banging about every 30 minutes. It's not known for sure if it's this crew or if it yeah. may be another sub in the area, but that was definitely good positive news that we haven't heard for several days. Yeah, and, and when you tweeted out what you tweeted out, you said there's still hope. That's how you ended the tweet. Um, where's your heart on that today, considering that uh, the oxygen and the math on that uh, doesn't feel good? It's not. It's, you know, they're probably down to their last day, to be honest. The, the good news is um, they had uh, a private company, uh, a, a private energy company was letting us use their ROVs. They they were not able to go all the way down to the surface, but today um, two French submersibles that can go down to 6,000 meters, should they should have already been on station about right now. So they're going down. Hopefully they can find them. And a U.S. Navy crane should be on station shortly, any minute now. And uh, once they find them, they're going to try and grab them with this crane and pull them up. So the theory is they're stuck somehow on the bottom we won't know until we find them. It's a search and rescue. So the first part is search and the second part is rescue. And there's probably not much more than a day, maybe two of oxygen. Um, so yeah, it's a very tough situation. Colonel, you were an astronaut. Uh, what do you think of these kinds of trips, this particular deep sea exploration or going to space, things like that, that require years and years of training being available to just normal people? <laughs> it's funny, people always ask me, when can normal people go into space? And I laugh like, I guess I'm not a normal person. But uh, a trip like this on the Titanic obviously requires a pretty good paycheck. But the good thing about it is there's scientists that are hired by the companies. They're actually studying the Titanic. It's been changing year over year. 
studying the sea surface. So there are scientific benefits that come from it. And right now, the main there's going to be lots of postmortem on the whole accident. But right now, we're just trying to find this crew. And that banging news is positive news. So we'll see. And don't sell yourself short. You went into space. So you're as close to a superhero <laughs> as uh, we get. Uh, Terry Birds, former commander of the International Space Station, friend of Hamish Harding, a passenger on the Titan. Thank you very much. Thanks for reporting the story. It's a good, it's a good story. Please keep it in the news. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi arrives in Washington, D.C. today for a meeting with President Biden. He'll also enjoy a state dinner and deliver a speech before a joint session of Congress. We've asked Daniel Markey to set the stage for all this and tell us what's at stake for both the U.S. and India. We called him because he's a former State Department official and now a senior advisor on South Asia at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. So let me just describe some of the obvious irritants from the U.S. side. India has maintained a trade relationship with Moscow despite the invasion of Ukraine, which it hasn't condemned, and it's defying sanctions by the U.S. and the international community in maintaining that relationship. How do you describe the state of the uh, the U.S.-India relationship right now? Well, I'd actually say the U.S.-India relationship is is very strong. Um, the The irritants that you've identified in terms of India's continued relationship with Russia are real, um, but I think the Biden administration is much more eager to focus on the positive aspects of the relationship and uh, in particular the areas of convergence with respect to both sides being concerned about uh, China, uh, China's aggression uh, in Asia and the rise of China more generally. So I think that's where the focus will be uh, for this trip. Um, specifically on the Russian oil issue, I think that you know, the Biden administration is is more eager to, if not overlook that, at least downplay that, uh, and to recognize that India needs oil, Russia has oil, it's buying it at low uh, cost, and that doesn't necessarily hurt U.S. interests directly. Hmm. So, you know, people might remember that the U.S. denied Modi a visa for nearly a decade for what were termed severe violations of religious freedom in India. So how does the administration think about that now? I mean, an invitation to a state dinner is considered a high honor. And, you know, of course, the opportunity to address Congress, which is not directly in White House control, but that is that is also an honor. So how do they think about that? Well, here too, I think the Biden administration is very eager to focus on the positive. Uh, the positive being that both India and the United States, again, are concerned about China. They're concerned about what China is doing along India's border. They're concerned about what uh, the rise of China means for U.S. and Indian interests. Um, but the human rights uh, issue is real. Uh, and it's one that I think members of Congress are concerned about. There's been a letter uh, written and, and sent to the Biden administration um, by members, many members of Congress, uh, suggesting that they have not just concerns about what Modi did years ago, uh, but the way that uh, Modi is running India, uh, concerns about eroding democracy in India, what that means for uh, the rights of Indians themselves. But, and here's my concern, what it may mean in the future for how India conducts itself on the world stage. So again, the Biden administration eager to downplay these things, either eager to celebrate the U.S.-India relationship in some ways uh, is smart about doing that. Um, but there are underlying concerns about the state and trajectory of India's democracy. And so how, how is that, that needle going to be threaded going forward as, re as briefly as you can? Look, I think the Biden administration wants to keep the negative stuff in private. The positive stuff will celebrate in, in public. Um, that's the way they want to balance it. And what do you think? I think that they ought to uh, shift the balance a bit. I don't think they should chastise Narendra Modi in public, but neither do I think 
they should do anything that celebrates uh, Modi the man, the individual as a politician. I think they should be celebrating the U.S.-India relationship more broadly, uh, working to uh, advance specific U.S.-India interests, material interests. There's a lot that we can do um, without uh, sort of celebrating or legitimizing uh, 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 Narendra Modi as an individual or leader. That's Daniel Markey. He's a senior advisor on South Asia for the U.S. Institute of Peace, and he's the author of China's Western Horizon, Beijing, and the New Geopolitics of Eurasia. Mr. Markey, thanks so much for sharing this expertise with us. Thank you. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll takes the nation's temperature on an array of social issues from abortion rights and affirmative action to how Americans feel about gender identity. This poll comes nearly a year after a Supreme Court ruling fundamentally changed abortion rights in this country. NPR senior political editor Domenico Montanaro is here with us now to tell us more. Good morning, Domenico. Hey, Michelle. So this Saturday marks a year since the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision on abortion. What does the poll tell us about how people are feeling about that decision now? Well, the survey interviewed more than 1,300 adults found a majority. 57% said that they were against the court's decision. You know, three-quarters of Democrats said that, almost six in ten independents did. But two-thirds of Republicans are in favor of it. We're seeing this dynamic play out on the campaign trail because of that. You know, and the Republican primary candidates are really racing to the right, looking to be the most conservative on abortion. But it's putting them on the wrong side of this issue in a general election. And this has been a pretty salient and motivating issue, as we saw in the 2022 midterm elections. Especially true for some key swing voters. You know, for example, two-thirds of women who live in small cities and suburbs and independent women oppose the decision. That's been pretty consistent with what we've seen in the past year since the Dobbs decision. This court has a couple of weeks to go in this current term, and there are a number of controversial items where they are still set to weigh in. One of those is affirmative action. What did the poll tell us about that? Yeah, this is really interesting because a majority here also say that they want to see affirmative action programs continued in hiring, promoting, and in college admissions. Of course, there's a sharp partisan divide. More than three-quarters of Democrats want these programs to continue, but roughly six in ten Republicans do not. Independents were split pretty much down the middle. We also saw clear differences by race age and gender, non-whites, those under 45, and women were far more likely to say that they want to see these programs continue. And there must be some disagreements around kitchen tables in the suburbs on this because we found that women who live there were 14 points more likely to be in favor of these programs than the men who do. Uh, more broadly, these kinds of numbers tell you why people continue to have little confidence in this conservative majority court. It's out of step with the majority of the population on a number of issues, certainly true on abortion. We'll see what happens on affirmative action. So, so let's talk about gender identity now, because that's one of those areas that has really mm -hmm. become this political lightning rod. So what did the survey tell us about that? Yeah, 61% of respondents said that they believe that the only way to define male and female is by the sex listed on a person's original birth certificate. 35% said that that definition is out of date and needs to be updated to include how people identify. There's a huge political divide here. Nine in 10 Republicans and six in 10 independents said gender is determined by birth. Six in 10 Democrats said that that's out of date. The results clearly show Republican messaging on this has had a pretty big effect. Back in May of last year, the split was just 51-42 in favor of gender being defined by birth. So we're talking about a 16-point net change here. Huge split, huge divide, and playing out on the campaign trail. That's 
Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, more on the search for the missing submersible in the North Atlantic. We'll get an update from WBUR's Walter Wuthman. It's 719. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Like many states, Mississippi passed an abortion ban last year, meaning some Mississippi parents are having children whom they didn't feel ready to raise. She knew that she wanted a lot more financial stability. She wanted a lot of things in her life to be different before she had a second child. One Woman's Story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny and a high near 68 today, mostly cloudy tonight with a low around 56. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high near 66. There's a chance of showers tomorrow night. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Today, we hear from the grand prize winners of NPR's Student Podcast Challenge for Middle School Students. Now, sometimes kids enter our nationwide contest as an assignment for class or maybe at the request of a teacher. But this year's winners made a podcast because they're best friends. 13-year-olds Erica Young and Nora Weiner couldn't believe it when their teacher, Jenny Chu, told them they'd won. <laughs> I did not expect that. You worked so hard. Yeah, you panic um, editing at the end. You were in here right. like, oh. It was fine. NPR Sequoia Carrillo visited the winners at their middle school in San Francisco. We met Erica, Nora, and Miss Chu four blocks away from Golden Gate Park at Presidio Middle School. Hi. Hi. Yes. Chu's classroom has big windows opening up to the perpetually gray sky. The school is empty. Students are already on summer break, and things have already changed. Erica and Nora just finished the seventh grade, but they've actually seen each other every day since school let out. Okay. This is my desk. This is my. Oh, perfect. We sit, we sit here. <laughs> Nora was even wearing Erica's boots that she borrowed. Yes, I'm wearing overalls. And- the girls are bubbly and giddy, only days away from heading to sleepaway camp together. Could you, Nora, introduce Erica? And Erica, could you introduce Nora? So this is Erica. She's my best friend. She's, out of all of our friends, 
the least pressure to like be cool because she knows that she's cool no matter what <laughs> which is a confidence i wish i had thank you nora um this is nora she's really good whenever she does anything and i wish that i could do things as well as nora can you're a very cool person too nora thanks erica <laughs> Our interview is full of laughs, but their podcast is anything but. They address one of the most grim realities facing students today. Here's a clip of their winning submission. This is a lockdown. Locks, lights, out of sight. The pair wanted to make a podcast about the realities of middle school right now. And one big part of that is the added danger and fear from the steady increase of school shootings. Gun violence, social media, and mental health are literally shaping middle school now. It's one of the things that our judges felt made this podcast so compelling, how they wove in larger national stories with what's happening in their school and in their community. They really talked to their classmates and teachers about heavy things that are also normal. I can promise you that every child in our 6th to 8th grade school has imagined who they'd be in a shooting. Would they run? Would they hide? I would run home and call the police. Find somewhere to hide and then just, like, stay there. Also, I'd try to text my parents and tell them that, like, if anything bad happened, I'd love them and stuff. One part that jumped out at me in their podcast, cat litter in the classroom. Here's their teacher to explain. Over here is our emergency lockdown kit. It's a bucket and there's a bunch of supplies here, like first aid stuff. Um, and there's also cat litter in Cat here. litter? Yeah, cat litter. Because if there's a lockdown, people have to use the bathroom. At Presidio, Chu showed us how each class is stocked with the necessities for being stuck inside, including a DIY bathroom. There's like toilet paper, cleansing towelettes, that, like a tarp. I have an emergency like first aid kit up here. With all the precautions, Chu told us she's run through the scenario of a shooter many times in her head. I've thought about this a lot and the best spot is this front section oh, here. You're right. Right, because you can't see it from the door. This cabinet blocks it, and so hopefully we can just squish right up to the front. Even though the anxiety over a possible school shooting hums under their day-to-day -day life, it's still middle school. And their podcast also addresses the one force that dominates their virtual and in-person world. Nowadays, when walking to school, you'll see girls literally surrounding the building who are dancing. The dances look kind of weird because they've likely come from TikTok. Erica explains more in person. You can't hear the music, and so you just see kids, like, moving their arms, like, over their heads and, like, just dancing around. They look like jellyfish, and it's really funny. But it's not only dances from TikTok that have created this kind of collective knowledge. Here's more from their podcast. Trends like baggy pants, crop corset tops, curtain bangs, and ripped jeans are all instigated from this app. While nothing about these are inherently bad, these fashion trends change rapidly, and things that are considered cool one day are considered ugly the next. It's hard for anyone to keep up with. Nora says the trends just keep coming. At the beginning of the year, I would look at those lacy tops and be like, oh, that's so ugly, but now it's so normal. I'm like, oh, she looks really good in that. It's like influencing how I view it, too. Of course, even though the technology is new, many of the feelings aren't. Chu says that's just middle school. I went through it and you guys are going through it, just like the influences of other people. And so I like wanted to do the things that they were doing, but I didn't because I felt I wasn't cool enough to like do all these trends. Because then you're like, wait, but if I do this, then I feel like people are gonna make fun of me for doing this, even though they're doing it mm. because like, I, I'm not cool enough to do this. I'm gonna be uncool no matter what, so maybe I should just stick with what I'm doing right <laughs> now. 
I think everyone who's been to middle school remembers this feeling. It's a lot. Stress, shooting, social media, beauty standards, and fast-changing fashion trends are piling up on middle school students around the country. Good and bad, these changes have affected us in countless ways. But together, the friends say they're making it through. This is Middle School Now. Thanks for listening. Bye. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News, San Francisco. Bye. Hey, Michelle Martin. Hey there. If uh, middle school Michelle Martin had a podcast, what would it be about? Ooh. Hmm. How can I put this? <laughs> Radio-friendly <laughs> terms. It's definitely about bodily functions. Oh. Body parts, bodily functions, if I can put it like that. A. Are you there, God? <laughs> it's me, Michelle. Are you 100%. 100%. Call Judy Bloom immediately. 100%. If, if it was me, lowercase a Martinez in no. middle school no. would be about, like, baseball superheroes, um, also new wave music. So actually, nothing would change between <laughs> middle nothing school, A's podcast, and But you're and so cool now. See, you were ahead of your time. That's the key here. You were ahead of your time. I, have a, I was a, just in time. A thick slab of coolness <laughs> added to <laughs> You're just to always my, cool. You were always cool. You just now. didn't know. You just didn't know. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, eviction filings in many cities have gone up by more than 50 percent from before the pandemic as the cost of rent continues to rise. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, mathworks.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Rescue teams continue the search for a submersible that was traveling to the site of the Titanic wreckage in the North Atlantic Ocean. The vessel went missing on Sunday with five people on board. Oceanographer David Gallo tells Sky News that the mission was known to be extremely complex given the location and depth of the wreckage. We knew all the difficulties there would be about how do you recover from that. Uh, If the sub is stuck on a shipwreck, if uh, they lose batteries, if they're caught on the bottom some other way. Uh, And nothing was done about it. The U.S. Coast Guard has confirmed reports that underwater noises were detected in a search area for the vessel. Attorney John Eastman is facing disbarment proceedings in California. Eastman had fought to overturn the results of the 2020 election and is accused of pushing bogus conspiracy theories. NPR's Tom Dreisbach describes the case. In court, the state bar's attorney argued that Eastman's conduct was, quote, fundamentally dishonest, that Eastman pushed false claims of fraud in court documents, conspired with Trump to obstruct the Electoral College count, and that he was pressuring Pence to violate the Constitution. This argument is that all these actions went against Eastman's professional responsibilities as a member of the state bar. NPR's Tom Dreisbach reporting. 
This is NPR News in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A meeting over the proposed move of one of Boston's three exam schools got contentious last night. City leaders want to relocate the O'Brien School of Mathematics and Science from Roxbury to West Roxbury. One of the issues is getting students from across the city to the less central location. WBUR's Max Larkin says the city promises dedicated school buses and MBTA links to the new campus. But you had parents and and alumni raising questions about how a city with a a strained transportation network um, and school buses that don't tend to run on time could add that extra layer of complexity. This is a move, district officials said, that probably wouldn't be in place until 2027 if it were approved. But I think between now and a school committee vote in the coming months, we're in for a lot more contention over this one. There will be a hearing on the proposed move tonight at the Boston Planning and Development Agency. Community health centers in Massachusetts say they need more money to address patient needs. The Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers says it needs over $170 million from the state. The group says the money would help with staff retention and overall funding. The centers mainly serve low-income populations. The 27th annual Nantucket Film Festival kicks off today. Anita Russwant is the festival's lead programmer. She says the festival focuses on film writing, and with the ongoing strike by the Writers Guild of America, she believes the event is more timely than ever. It all comes back to the script. You know, you can't get anywhere without a script. You can't have a director, you can't have a cast, you can't have a film. The screenwriter is the person who is informing all of those decisions, and they just don't get the credit that they deserve. The festival runs through next Monday. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Red Sox beat the Twins 10-4 to last night in Minneapolis. The teams will play again tonight. A mix of sun and clouds today with high temperatures in the upper 60s. Those fall into the mid-50s tonight. It'll be mostly cloudy. Tomorrow, more clouds than sun and highs in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 61 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features with Asteroid City, the new comedy from director Wes Anderson, starring Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, and Tom Hanks, now playing in New York and Los Angeles, in theaters everywhere this Friday. And from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. A Canadian surveillance plane picked up underwater noises during the search for the missing submersible in the North Atlantic. That vessel known as Titan lost contact while diving at the wreck of the Titanic on Sunday. The people on board likely have less than a day of oxygen remaining. The search efforts are now being organized through a unified command center at the Coast Guard base in Boston. Walter Wuthman of member station WBUR is following the search and he's with us now to tell us more. Good morning, Walter. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So what can you tell us about the latest on the situation? 
So very early this morning, the Coast Guard said Canadian P-3 aircraft detected, quote, underwater noises in the search area around the wreck of the Titanic. As a result, they've sent in remote-operated underwater vehicles to explore the origin of those noises. Those ROVs haven't found anything yet, but the search continues as we speak. And to step back a bit, this search and rescue operation started Sunday night and is now in its third day. U.S. and Canadian planes and ships are combing a patch of water about the size of Connecticut. And they're working really far from shore. Here's Coast Guard Captain Jamie Frederick. You're talking about a search area that's 900 miles east of Cape Cod, uh, 400 miles um, south of uh, St. John's. So logistically speaking, it's hard to bring assets to bear. It takes time. It takes coordination. So they're still searching, and these newly detected underwater noises are the first major break since they started. So he spoke about coordination, so I take it that the Coast Guard is getting some help from private industry and research vessels? That's right, and that's because it's incredibly difficult to actually search under the water. Coast Guard officials say they're trained for surface rescue and don't have equipment that can dive deep enough to search for this submersible, so they have to get help. The research vessel that launched Titan, the Polar Prince, is still out there and assisting with the search. And a commercial ship called Deep Energy arrived at the site yesterday. Coast Guard Captain Frederick said it's equipped for laying pipes on the seafloor, so has remote-operated vehicles that can dive all the way down. They have rendezvoused with the vessel Polar Prince and commenced an ROV dive at the last known of the position of the Titan and the approximate position of the Titanic wreck. That operation is currently ongoing. And they said they're still actively soliciting more help. Now, this submersible belongs to a private company, OceanGate, which operates private tours of the Titanic site. I understand that their safety record has drawn scrutiny in recent days. Yes, and people have raised safety concerns about OceanGate's submersible Titan before. We obtained federal court documents from a contract dispute in 2018 that show the company's former director of marine operations was concerned about the vessel's structural integrity. That employee, David Lockridge, was an experienced submarine pilot and said OceanGate didn't properly test the submersible's carbon fiber hull. The documents say that Lockridge expressed verbal concerns to executive management, which were ignored, and later wrote a report identifying, quote, numerous issues that posed serious safety concerns. His lawyers wrote that instead of addressing the points he raised, the company fired him. The company, meanwhile, said that Lockridge was not an engineer and refused to accept assurances from the company's lead engineer that their testing was sufficient. The party settled out of court in 2018, and the details of that settlement aren't public. OceanGate didn't return our request for comment, and a lawyer for David Lockridge said that he had no comment. So as briefly as you can, Walter, before we let you go, um, how much time do they have at this point? Yesterday, they estimated, um, as you said up top, about 40 hours of oxygen left. That would put us at about a day's worth now. So hope hasn't run out, and these new noises they've detected allow them to really focus in on this specific area. So I'm sure that's what they will be doing today. That's Walter Worthman of member station WBUR in Boston. Walter, thanks so much for sharing this reporting with us. Thank you. An influential health task force has just issued new recommendations about screening for anxiety problems. The panel of clinicians now says that all adults without anxiety symptoms should be screened for the problem through annual checkups. Here to tell us more about this guidance is NPR health correspondent Michaeline Duclef. Uh, so who's uh, issuing this guidance? 
So the recommendation comes from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. It's a panel of clinicians who review research about preventive care and then look to see if there's actual evidence that these services are beneficial for people. Last year, they began recommending that children over age seven who don't have symptoms of anxiety be screened for the problem at their regular checkups. Now they've extended this recommendation to adults under age 65, regardless of their risk. Uh, Dr. Bingat Ogadebe was part of this panel. He's at New York University. He says the new guidance is backed by really solid evidence. The good news is that for adults without signs or symptoms of anxiety, the evidence is clear that if we screen them, that that screening is beneficial that the screening works, it helps to find people who need treatment, and if they do get treatment, they have a better outcome than the people who weren't screened and didn't get treatment. All right, so say I'm in the doctor's office sitting there, what should I expect to hear? Yeah, so typically this involves a series of questions. You know, maybe your doctor can ask you them during the exam, or they give you a questionnaire that you fill out while you're waiting to see the doctor. And questions for anxiety can be like, in the past, Two weeks, A, eh? how often have you had trouble relaxing, trouble sitting still? All or the time. Have been easily... All the time. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought, <laughs> sorry, go ahead, Michael. No, no, of course. You know, have been easily annoyed or irritable. Yes, they do sound familiar, but it's this idea of, you know, are they reoccurring and, and kind of don't go away easily. And, you know, during the pandemic, around a third of adults reported symptoms of anxiety each month but the panel found that primary care doctors often miss anxiety because it can masquerade as other issues, like patients may complain about trouble sleeping or chest pain or even shortness of breath. So the hope here is that with questionnaires like this, more people can get diagnosed and get treatment more quickly. And I should note that the task force also recommends screening for depression for all adults too. And, and just to be clear, even for people without symptoms, that's that's right. Exactly. This recommendation is for specifically people without symptoms. So what if you have signs of anxiety or depression? Yeah, Dr. Ogadebe says this is really important. For anyone with symptoms of anxiety, depression, or suicidal ideation, it's imperative that they be linked up with somebody who can formally diagnose them and then provide treatment right away. And here's where these recommendations become a bit controversial, because right now in the country, we don't have enough psychologists and therapists and psychiatrists to treat everyone with, who has anxiety and depression. So screening everyone won't be helpful if a person actually can't find treatment Dr. Ogadebe says this is especially a problem for specific groups of people. We do understand there are barriers to treatment, particularly for Native Americans, multiracial groups, Black and Hispanic populations, and it's very important to increase research in that space. So we can remove that. So right barriers. now, researchers don't understand what's preventing groups from get these groups from getting diagnosed and treatment, and he says this topic needs to be researched urgently. That's NPR health correspondent Michaeline Duclef. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, eh? And if you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. This is NPR News. It's a Wednesday on WBUR. Coming up at 810, the State Bar of California is trying to revoke the law license of the attorney who worked on efforts to overturn the 2020 election for former President Donald Trump. 
So you've probably heard of Puxatani Phil, the groundhog who gives his so-called prediction on winter weather each February. But have you heard of Doug the Quahog? He gives an equally scientific prediction on how many beach days there will be on the Cape each summer. And we'll learn that prediction today at the 15th annual Quahog Day in Sandwich. That day is organized by the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce to draw attention to the Cape as a summer destination. In your forecast, partly sunny and upper 60s today, overcast and mid-50s tonight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and mid-60s. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. An investor is suing Boston chef Tiffany Faison over claims she mismanaged finances at several of her restaurants. The lawsuit claims Faison breached her financial duties to investors and misused pandemic relief funds. Faison denies the allegations. In a statement to the Boston Globe, she called the lawsuit disappointing but not surprising. She says the investor has a history of, quote, misogynistic and bullying tactics. Ultragenics Pharmaceutical is celebrating the grand opening of its new plant in Bedford. The facility will manufacture gene therapies for serious inherited diseases. Company leaders say 120 people are employed full-time at the plant. It's located on a nearly 11-acre site off Route 3. Worcester-based Table Talk Pies is under new leadership. The pie maker appointed Isaac Long as its president. Long has spent several months serving as a strategic advisor for Table Talk. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Martinez. Evictions are soaring as pandemic-era protections intended to keep tenants in their homes have been lifted. Princeton University's eviction lab finds average eviction filings in some cities have jumped 50 percent or more compared to pre-pandemic rates. Joining us now is Danny Grubbs Donovan, a research specialist at the lab, which tracks eviction filings in nearly three dozen cities across the U.S. Uh, Danny, which cities have been hardest hit? Yeah, we saw some of the biggest increases from 2021 to 2022 in Las Vegas, Minneapolis, and Houston. Um, and that's all against pre-pandemic averages. So it's compared to a sort of pre-pandemic normal amount of filings. And in about half of the cities that we track, we're now seeing filing levels above pre-pandemic averages. Above, okay. Now, is I mean, is the era is the end of pandemic era protections and those uh, rental aid programs? Is that solely to blame for the increases, or are there maybe other factors involved? I think that's to blame for the broad trend. Um, Like I said, we saw an increase in filings in every city that we track between 2021 and 2022. Um, And that can largely be laid at the feet of the 
expiration of local and federal eviction moratoria. Uh, we estimate that about a million and a half eviction filings were prevented in 2021 by the federal moratorium. Um, so you see a lot of those missing filings coming back in in 2022. There's also a variety of specific factors in each city that are contributing to filing levels like affordable housing supply, rent prices, and the local policy environment with regards to renters. But broadly, we look at the moratorium and uh, the end of emergency rental assistance funding. Is there any way to project if this is going to get worse or are eviction rates maybe going to get back to normal at some point? I don't feel comfortable projecting really, but we mm. know that there are things that we can do to keep people in their homes. There are a lot of cities that haven't seen a large increase or have kept their eviction filing levels well below pre-pandemic averages. Um, one is Philadelphia, where they have a really robust eviction diversion program. They mandate mediation between landlords and tenants before eviction cases even get to housing court. They have something like a 90% housing or 90% success rate at settling outside of court. So there are things that we can do to get eviction levels low, but it's just sort of local policy initiatives at the city level. Yeah, maybe how I asked that question is part of the problem. I said eviction rates getting back to normal, not that eviction should be normal, right? Yes, yeah. There's a big concept of we don't want to return to business as usual. Um, we were in an affordable housing crisis before the pandemic. Evictions were harmful before the pandemic, and we want to keep the pro-renter protections that were put in place the historic renter protections that were put in place during the pandemic in place and not return to business as usual. Are you seeing any programs at all, Danny, that uh, are effectively driving down evictions? Yeah, yeah. One that I point to is the, the eviction diver diversion program in Philadelphia, like I mentioned. Um, beyond that, I think tenant organizing uh, outside of government has also been very effective. Um, one thing that I've sort of been following is KC tenants in Kansas City. Um, in just one month in 2021, they prevented or blocked about a thousand evictions um, from going through court. And that's not keeping filings low, but it is keeping people in their homes. Um, so yeah, or, tenant organizing, I would say, is very effective as well. All right. That's Danny Grubbs Donovan, a research specialist at Princeton University's Eviction Lab. Danny, thanks. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. You're with WBOR. Coming up at 820, a collection of drawings by Leonardo da Vinci is making its U.S. debut in a Washington, D.C. public library. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com Russia has warned many times since the start of the Ukraine war that it might resort to using nuclear weapons. Most observers think that's just bellicose bluster. But one former defense attaché to Moscow takes what he's hearing very seriously. If the Ukrainian counteroffensive is successful, then I think it's clearly over 50% likely that uh, Putin would use a nuclear weapon. That's On Point, today at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. is pledging $1.3 billion in additional aid to Ukraine amid Russia's war there. 
Rescue teams say they have detected underwater noises in their search for a submersible missing in the Atlantic Ocean. And Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira is set to appear in federal court today on charges he leaked top-secret documents. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. Upper 60s today under partly sunny skies, mid-50s tonight and mostly cloudy. It stays mostly cloudy tomorrow and we'll have temperatures in the mid-60s. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Guatemalans are getting ready to pick a new president. But years of poor governance and controversies around the latest election have left many voters exhausted and apathetic. NPR's Ada Peralta has more. At first blush, this is a regular campaign season in Guatemala. The streets are lined with pictures of the almost two dozen candidates running for president, and political parties are parading bands across the streets to garner some enthusiasm. But as these candidates parade around downtown, all they get are eye rolls. It's all the same. Nothing ever changes, says Sonia de Hernandez. She doesn't even bother to stand up to greet the politicians. In fact, she says, this whole display makes her angry. It's the same old story, she says. The poor get poorer as the rich get richer. There was a moment, she says, a few years ago when she was hopeful. In 2015, Guatemalans came out in mass to demand an end to corruption, and they managed to topple a president. But after that, things got messy. A comedian became president. A UN-backed anti-corruption task force was kicked out of the country. The courts were co-opted. Dissidents were forced into exile. In this election cycle, three of the most prominent and popular presidential candidates have been kicked off the ballot through court decisions that are widely seen as political. It means there's no longer trust, she says. The problem here in Guatemala is that we don't have a rule of law anymore. That's political analyst Carlos Mendoza Alvarado. He says just 16% of Guatemalans say they can trust the electoral system. Only half of the young people in the country are even registered to vote. And by the time presidential elections get to the second round, as they have for years, they're decided with a turnout of around 40%. Four years ago, Alejandro Yamate won with less than 2 million votes, or 11% of the population. It seems with all the problems that you've laid out, there's no way that at the end of this process you come out with a legitimate leader. That's right. That's right. Uh, Basically, the integrity of elections is at the minimum. To Eduardo Núñez, the director of the National Democratic Institute in Guatemala, this is symbolic of the crisis of democracy across Latin America. We built democracy in Latin America on the back of normative and institutional reforms. But we invested little in reforming the political culture. 
So in a lot of ways, what's happening is that the same robust institutions built to run unimpeachable elections are now being weaponized by unscrupulous politicians. They're being used to get rid of the competition, used to legitimize their reign. I traveled a couple of hundred miles in Guatemala. I spoke to dozens of people, rich, poor, urban, rural, and I didn't find a single enthusiastic voter. Blanca! I find Blanca Peralta at a market in Guatemala City. For most of her 68 years, she has made a living selling piñatas. She suffered. She had nine kids. Only three survive. The only thing you can trust in Guatemala, she says, is your own hard work. So she's not even going to bother to vote. They're all a bunch of thieves, she says. But despite them, she's built a little house. With hard work, she has enough money to buy a little perfume, which makes her happy. Every now and then, she says, she sees politicians come around and offer money or food. But she's convinced that for the rest of her life, she will not vote. Ni por hambre, ni por pisto, ni por nada. Me voy a ir limpia porque si queda mal un presidente, quien votó también queda mal. Even if I'm hungry, even if I need money, I won't vote. She says she won't be left with egg on her face. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Guatemala City. With Puerto Rico's debt crisis spiraling, the island's zoo was forced to close, sparking a massive animal evacuation. The biggest move involved Mundi, an African elephant. We're going to hear first from NPR's Adrian Florido, who witnessed her departure, then from WFSU's Margie Menzel about how Mundi is doing now. Mundi was two days from boarding a cargo jet that would fly her to her new home at an elephant refuge in Georgia. And Carol Buckley, who would be her new caretaker there, was trying to coax her into a giant transport crate. Practice for the day of the trip. There's my girl. You want some watermelon? Things were tense at the zoo. Armed federal agents were standing guard because people angry that Mundi was being taken off of Puerto Rico had been talking on social media about ways to sabotage the trip. People have very mixed emotions about her leaving. But the number of Puerto Ricans who have talked to me crying because they love Mundi so much, but saying, please take her and give her a better life. It was time to go. Mundi the elephant was still reluctant to enter her crate, so the transport team gently forced her in by tying a rope around her front foot. Just before midnight, Mundi, a rhino, two hippopotamuses, a donkey, and an impala were on their way to the airport. People lined the route to wave goodbye. A crane hauled Mundi into the side of the massive 747. Just beyond the airport fence, a small crowd gathered. Miriam Nunez was there. On the one hand, I'm happy, she said, because I know Mundi's going to be better off. But on the other hand, I'm sad because she's left. When Mundi first arrived in Georgia, she was kept apart from the other elephants by a fence. Carol Buckley says she wasn't sure how the others would react. But one of them, called Tara, took an interest right away. I wanted to feed Mundi and Tara close together. She picked up her food and brought it right over to the fence line here so she could be eating with Mundi. I think that is really good. But it's, it, it would be inappropriate for us to rush it. That elephant talking there was 36-year-old Bo. He also welcomed Mundi at the fence, and once it was taken down, he became her playmate. In her former life, Mundi was on public display. Not now. 
they feel all the vibration and energy that comes into their area, which is one of the reasons we're not open to the public, because I can't control people's energy. A month ago, Buckley thanked the people of Puerto Rico for letting Mundi go to a better life. The elephant is now free to roam, surrounded by her new friends. That's Margie Menzel in Tallahassee, Florida, and Adrian Florido reporting from Mayagüez, Puerto Rico. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Upper 60s and partly sunny today, cloudy and mid-50s tonight, mostly cloudy tomorrow in the mid-60s. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. And Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company, offering professional, local, long-distance, office, and piano moving with 23 locations nationwide, gentlegiant.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Rescue efforts have been redirected in response to underwater noises heard during the search for the missing submersible in the Atlantic. It's Wednesday, June 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, California is trying to revoke the license of one of the attorneys who tried to overturn the 2020 election for former President Donald Trump. Lawyers hold positions of public trust in our society. We have to agree to certain rules of the profession. Also this hour, more than a million Americans lost Medicaid coverage after pandemic-era protections expired in March. And during this Pride Month, we unpack the history of Boston's queer suffering. I think it's important that history reminds us that there have always been LGBTQ people and they will always exist. Red Sox win their sixth in a row, partly sunny and upper 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Coast Guard says a plane has picked up underwater noises as teams search for a missing submersible in the North Atlantic. Nothing's been found. The sea vessel is owned by a private company, Ocean Gate. From member station WBUR, Walter Wuthman says concerns have previously been raised about the submersible. People have raised safety concerns about Ocean Gate's submersible Titan before. We obtained federal court documents from a contract dispute in 2018 that show the company's former director of marine operations was concerned about the vessel's structural integrity. That employee, David Lockridge, was an experienced submarine pilot and said OceanGate didn't properly test the submersible's carbon fiber hull. Walter Wuthman reporting. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell updates lawmakers today about inflation and the central bank's efforts to fight it. NPR Scott Horsley reports consumer prices are still climbing in the U.S., but not as fast as they were a year ago. Inflation has cooled from just over 9% a year ago to 4% last month. That improvement's given the Federal Reserve a little breathing room. Last week, Powell and his colleagues decided to leave interest rates unchanged. Fed policymakers have hinted that more rate hikes could be in store, however. Lawmakers will likely grill Powell about the Fed's strategy as it tries to bring inflation down to its 2% target, where it was before the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
Separately, a Senate committee holds a hearing today on three nominees for the Fed's governing board, including a newcomer, Adriana Kugler. She's an economist who previously served in the Labor Department and is now at the World Bank. Kugler, who grew up in Colombia, would be the first Latina to serve on the central bank's governing body. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. A federal judge has permanently struck down an Arkansas law banning gender-affirming care for transgender minors. From member station KUAR, Daniel Breen reports. The ruling by U.S. District Judge James Moody Jr. says Arkansas violated its citizens' constitutional rights to equal protection when it banned all gender-affirming treatments for people under 18. The 80-page ruling says depriving trans minors of treatments like hormone therapy would cause them irreparable harm, and that delaying care until adulthood would force teens to go through changes inconsistent with their gender identity. The ruling comes after an eight-day trial in December where several of the state's witnesses admitted they didn't have experience treating transgender teens and offered no evidence to dispute decades of medical research. For NPR News, I'm Daniel Breen in Little Rock. China says President Biden made an absurd, provocative statement last night. Biden said Chinese leader Xi Jinping didn't know about a suspected Chinese spy balloon that was eventually shot down by the U.S., Biden said that was a great embarrassment for dictators. Meanwhile, Biden will see Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi at the White House tonight. That comes ahead of tomorrow's state dinner and official meeting with Modi. This is NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret government documents is due to be arraigned in Worcester today. As WBUR's Ali Jarmanning reports, Jack Deshera was indicted last week on six counts of retaining and transmitting national defense information. Tashera has been held at the Plymouth County Jail since he was arrested in April at his Dighton home. Prosecutors say he improperly accessed classified information through his job with the 102nd Intelligence Wing at Otis Air National Guard Base on Cape Cod. He then allegedly posted the information in an online Discord chat. A judge ruled last month Tashera should stay in custody as he awaits trial. He faces up to 10 years in prison on each count. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Governor Maura Healey will travel to Ireland next week. She'll address the Irish Senate on the country's 30th anniversary of decriminalizing homosexuality. Healey will also meet with business and tech leaders in the country. This will be Healey's first trip overseas as governor. Business leaders on Cape Cod say the region's housing crisis will impact the summer tourist season. The Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce says there are about 3,000 fewer workers than what's needed. That's in part due to a lack of housing required for foreign students with exchange visas. Chamber President Paul Nidzwicki says people vacationing on the Cape may notice a difference this summer. You know, you'll see restaurants that aren't open as many days or you know, only serve dinner instead of lunch and dinner, and businesses that have to close uh, one day a week uh, just to give their employees a break. It's Wiki says the region is unlikely to see the same high number of tourists it saw last summer. Today is the start to astronomical summer. That means it's the longest day of the year. Boston is celebrating with the Summer Solstice Festival with live music in downtown Crossing and other city neighborhoods. George Camo is with the downtown Boston Business Improvement District, which is coordinating the festival. There is music for everyone, and that's what makes it so special. Your music is part of the fabric of the city 
And in downtown Boston, we're an incredibly diverse neighborhood, and so you're going to hear it all. You can catch music at Downtown Crossing from noon to 8. It's 8.06. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. The Red Sox topped the Twins 10 to 4 last night in Minneapolis. Christian Arroyo went 5 for 5 and drove in four runs for Boston. The Sox and Twins will play again tonight. Some morning fog and clouds will eventually give way to sunshine today. It'll be around 70, partly cloudy overnight and in the 50s, partly sunny tomorrow and in the lower 70s. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. Five people aboard a deep-sea submersible that disappeared on its way to view the Titanic may be running low on oxygen. Searchers detected some underwater noises in the North Atlantic yesterday, but other than that, no sign of the vessel that could be nearly 13,000 feet beneath the ocean surface. And before it disappeared, some industry experts raised concerns about the potential for catastrophic problems with submersibles and their tours. One of them is Will Conan, chair of the Marine Technology Society's submarine group. Will, given those concerns that you've had, uh, has any of this surprised you? Well, good morning. Uh, well, no, uh, it it hasn't surprised us. We uh, we've been aware of this project for some time and and have had some some concerns, which is the source of the letter. Um, one of the uh, uh, one of the things I would like to correct, if I have an opportunity, sure. is the Go Marine ahead. Technology Society that is uh, quoted in submitting the letter uh, did not submit that letter. Um, it is unfortunate that this letter was posted. This letter was never submitted to OceanGate uh, uh, by the Marine Technology Society, neither by us. Uh, the I wrote that letter myself, mm. and it was a result of our annual conference. Uh, okay. We organize a yearly conference, and we bring all the experts in the world in one place. And many people back in 2018 uh, expressed concern of what was going on and said we should really okay. say something. Okay. Um, now, the, the company behind uh, the Titan and others like it, do they have proper oversight? Well, that was the at the root of the of the concern. Uh, that is the question. Most of the companies in this industry that are building uh, submersibles and deep submersibles uh, uh, follow uh, a fairly well established framework of certification and verification and oversight through classification societies. And that was at the root of uh, Ocean Gate's project is that they were going to go. Uh, solo going without that type of uh, official oversight, and that brought a lot of concerns. Okay, and but the framework though that you mentioned, who who makes that framework, and, and who makes sure that um, the framework's enforced? Sure, sure. Uh, there's several uh, uh, third-party agencies around the world that do this. Um, uh, typically, the ones that are specialists in submarines are the American Bureau of Shipping, 
uh, Lloyd's Register, uh, DNV in Europe. And these are international organizations that actually write rules. Uh, and they're responsible for overseeing complicated structures like uh, ships, uh, super tankers, oil platforms, and submarines. And so they publish these rules. They actually uh, review a design. They have engineers to review design. They send inspectors to see how it's fabricated, and they witness all the testing. Uh, they're generally uh, representative of an owner and making sure that the vehicle is designed to specification. When it comes to um, designs, um, OceanGate in a blog post in 2019 said it took uh, operational safety very seriously, but it argued that flawed industry standards held back certifications for innovative designs. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that look, these were uh, uh, the adult conversations we've had. Uh, uh, I've had the conversation uh, while we we did not submit that uh, uh, letter to OceanGate. I did have a conversation with uh, uh, Stockton Rush. We agreed to disagree. And the the issue is uh, uh, the regulatory bodies are too slow to react to new innovations. It's not unique to submarines. All industries face the same issue. And it is a careful dance of, of how do you push regulations forward in the face of rapid changing technology. And so, uh, the approach there was, well, uh, it is too slow to react to all this new technology and we will forego. Quickly, uh, Will, uh, about 30 seconds, do we need to pause and maybe rethink how we approach these kinds of deep sea explorations? No, uh, we have submarines all over the world diving uh, 12,000 to 20,000 feet uh, uh, every day of the year uh, for research. We know very well uh, how how to build and how to design these machines and how to operate them safely. So e Even for public no. consumption, though, for just anyone to use? Uh, yes, but it just gets expensive. Okay. Will Conan is the chair of the Marine Technology Society Submarine Group, and he heads the Southern California-based Hydrospace Group. Will, thanks. Thank you so much. The attorney, John Eastman, fought to overturn the 2020 election and keep Donald Trump in power. Now he's fighting to keep his law license. Yeah, the State Bar of California says Eastman knowingly pushed bogus conspiracy theories about the election and should be disbarred. Disciplinary hearings against Eastman started yesterday, and the former dean of Chapman University's law school testified. NPR's Tom Dreisbach was in the courtroom, and he's with us now to tell us what happened. Good morning. Good morning. So could you just bring us up to speed on what Eastman did after the 2020 election? So Eastman is a right-wing law professor, attorney, and he was a key player in the Trump legal team that was challenging the election results. He developed, most importantly, this plan for swing states that voted for Biden to submit alternate or fake slates of electors for Trump, and he pressured Vice President Pence to block Biden's win on January 6th. Now that same day, Eastman rallied the crowd to add to the pressure on Pence. This is bigger than President Trump. It is the very essence of our Republican form of government, and it has to be done. And anybody that is not willing to stand up to do it does not deserve to be in the office. It is that simple. Later that day, of course, a mob violently stormed the Capitol, and even after the violence started, emails show that Eastman continued to advocate this plan to block Biden's victory. So what's the state bar's case against Eastman? 
Well, in court, the state bar's attorney argued that Eastman's conduct was, quote, fundamentally dishonest, that Eastman pushed false claims of fraud in court documents, conspired with Trump to obstruct the electoral college count, and that he was pressuring Pence to violate the Constitution. This argument is that all these actions went against Eastman's professional responsibilities as a member of the state bar. Now, I talked about this with Jessica Levinson. She's a law professor at Loyola Law School here in LA, and she says this is one of several cases of disciplinary hearings for Trump lawyers. Think also of Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, and these are really a matter of the legal community deciding essentially whether to vote someone off the island. Lawyers hold positions of public trust in our society. There's a reason that we have to agree to certain rules of the profession. And the baseline is don't lie to judges, support the law, and support the Constitution. So now, of course, I'm going to ask you what Eastman's response to these charges is. I think I'm assuming he's arguing that he was just arguing that he's making the case for his client. Eastman was actually the first witness called by the state bar, and he was a lot more muted on the stand than at that rally you heard on January 6th. And he was asked about the sources of some of the wild claims and legal filings and public comments he made about supposed voter fraud or irregularities in the election, and basically said he trusted information that they were getting on the legal team was vetted because he trusted the lawyers he worked with, but he did not actually do much of the vetting himself. And I should say there's no indication he's backed away from some of his legal theories. In one interesting exchange, the State Bar asked about his theory on decertifying an election even more than a year after the fact. Eastman contended that even though it would be uncharted territory, he said it was plausible that Joe Biden's election could still be decertified and he could be kicked out of office. Now, Eastman is set to resume his testimony tomorrow. What else can we expect from the rest of the trial? Well, it's supposed to last about two weeks. With Eastman under oath, we could get some new information about the behind-the-scenes work to overturn the 2020 election. We're also supposed to hear from Greg Jacob, who was a lawyer for then-Vice President Pence. And Eastman's witness list includes some really fringe uh, figures who have supported election denial. Now, the judge in the case will ultimately make a ruling, but the California Supreme Court has the final say here. That's NPR's Tom Dreisbach. Tom, thank you. Thank you. A collection of drawings by Leonardo da Vinci is making its first U.S. appearance in an exhibition now open in Washington, D.C. But to see it, you're going to walk past the place you might expect, one of the Smithsonian Museums, and head over to the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library. The exhibition's called Imagining the Future, Leonardo da Vinci in the Mind of an Italian Genius. We have here a selection of 12 drawings out of 1,119 drawings. That's Alberto Roca, a fellow at Milan's Biblioteca Ambrosiana Library. He's talking about the Atlantic Codex, the largest collection of written notes and drawings by da Vinci. We have three drawings on flight. We have some drawings of hydraulics, and also we have some textile machineries. The images date from 1478 to 1519. They also include subjects such as mechanics, perpetual motion, and the development of gears, all themes that da Vinci believed had a purpose. It's not just beauty for beauty, but is beauty applied to life. Uh, of course, uh, he says that utility and beauty have to go together. The collection was brought across the Atlantic by the General Confederation of Italian Industry. They opened their D.C. office today as part of a project to broaden the appeal of Italian industry. The group's president, Carlo Bonomi, says da Vinci is his country's finest ambassador. It's very important for us also 
to build a bridge with the USA, not only for the economic issue, but also for social issue. And the public library is very important in this way. D.C. Public Library has hosted an art of this caliber before, says Executive Director Richard Reyes-Gavillon. Leonardo here at the MLK Library could provide an opportunity for people who may feel isolated from a typical museum experience. He says the exhibit makes a change from the library's usual focus on local artists and histories. What an opportunity to have a regular urban library user who may not ever visit a museum stumble upon the handwritten works of possibly humanity's greatest genius. There's also an interactive exhibit alongside the drawings. Children can try their hands at aerodynamics and mechanics and make like a little Leonardo. The collection is on display until August 20th. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, more than a million Americans, including many children, lost Medicaid coverage in March after pandemic-era policies that re-enrolled them automatically expired. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. Russia has warned many times since the start of the Ukraine war that it might resort to using nuclear weapons. Most observers think that's just bellicose bluster. But one former defense attaché to Moscow takes what he's hearing very seriously. If the Ukrainian counteroffensive is successful, then I think it's clearly over 50 percent likely that uh, Putin would use a nuclear weapon. That's On Point, today at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Partly sunny and a high near 68 today, mostly cloudy tonight with a low around 56. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high near 66. There's a chance of showers tomorrow night. It's 62 degrees in Boston. Today's episode of our podcast, The Common, is out. Host Daryl C. Murphy delves into the Boston food scene and asks why it still doesn't have a restaurant with a Michelin star. Learn more on The Common wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features with Asteroid City, the new comedy from director Wes Anderson. A junior stargazers convention is disrupted by an alien encounter. Now playing in New York and Los Angeles in theaters everywhere this Friday. From Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live online or in-person summer programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com slash NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. 
Enemy Martinez, this week marks the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court decision that ended the federal right to an abortion. A state that has felt this change acutely is Texas. Some researchers say there have been at least 25,000 fewer abortions there since the court's ruling. From San Antonio, Katie Riddle brings us a story about a pregnant woman who wasn't able to get an abortion and another woman who's been trying to help. For three decades, Terry Herring has been making this promise to women. Keep your pregnancy, and I will help you. I feel like you talked a woman out of an abortion, you owe her more. Herring is 69 years old. Her organization is Allied Women's Center. People come here for pregnancy tests. If they're positive, Herring and her volunteers try to dissuade them from having an abortion. When that happens, Herring feels responsible to keep helping them. This is our size ones. She gestures to rows and rows of donated diapers. A pack of these can run 50 bucks. She gives these away. She's standing in the small house that she works out of. And we go through a lot of diapers. How many? Uh, <laughs> in a month, it's like 10,000. Herring also hands out formula, food, clothes. If someone needs an electric bill paid, she writes a check. She's seen more new moms who need help this year, a lot more. She gave out more than $9,000 in March, three times more than she did last March. People have asked for help with things like rent, cars, refrigerators. All I women said, may I help you? Herring's phone is always ringing. She doubles as a kind of grandma to many of these clients. The woman on the other end of this call is telling her about a leak in her roof. So is the water leaking from the rain? The caller is a woman who tried and failed to get an abortion out of state a few months ago. Her name is Anna. She and her husband, Tony, live 40 minutes away from San Antonio. That evening, they stand outside in their yard. I feel like I'm lucky that I found Terry, but it, it hasn't been that easy. NPR is not using Anna and Tony's full names. They fear the impact telling their story might have on their family. They are second-generation immigrants from L.A. Six years ago, they decided to trade big city California for the Texas countryside. Just the um, whole hype of moving to a different state because it's cheaper, uh, better uh, quality life, we kind of went with it, and now we're here. They packed up their three kids and used their savings to move onto a farm. They bought some animals. You see movies or TV shows about (laughs) people living in farms and and how easy it is. (laughs) It's not not how you see it on TV. It worked okay for a while. They wanted a big family. The babies kept coming. Six kids in total, all boys. But when COVID hit, Tony lost his job driving a truck. My husband says (laughs) when it rains, it pours. And it started pouring on us. Their five-bedroom house looks fine from the outside, but inside is a different story. Things are breaking down, like the washing machine. Anna walks past baskets overflowing with laundry. And so all these uh, buckets of clothes is clothes that needs to be washed soon. The washing machine is one of many things they don't have the money to fix. We had a water leak in the kitchen, um, and then our water heater went out where I didn't have warm water to bathe the boys. The air conditioning went, Tony's truck broke. That made it much harder for him to find work. Then, last winter, Anna found out she was pregnant again. All I could think about, like, I need an abortion because there's no way I can deal with everything going on right now. And taking care of all the boys by myself and having another baby. 
Going to a state like New Mexico, where abortion is legal, was too expensive. She called a group that gives money to people in situations like hers, but in the end, she couldn't manage the travel. It was just the decision of driving by myself, getting the procedure done, and driving back home by myself with all the emotions and then the clinical part of it. She doesn't have anyone else to help her with the kids. Tony is working odd jobs. They can't afford him to take even one day off. Or loading all my boys and driving eight hours away to get this procedure done. That's when she got in touch with Terry Herring at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. I still struggle with, um, you know, thinking that I'm going to have another baby and our situation right now, but... Yeah, she contributed to making it easier for me to accept. The heat index on this day is 102. With no air conditioning, it's hot in their house. Anna and Tony walk past the laundry baskets down the hall to the bedrooms. So this is where our kids were sleeping. Tony points to mold on the ceiling above some bunk beds. This is where the roof is leaking. No one is sleeping up here anymore. The entire family has moved into one bedroom downstairs. The house represents you, you know, you kind of want to make it look nice, be comfortable. And with the water leaks and all that stuff, it's just, it's just taking steps back. I know how stress is so bad for the pregnancy and I feel so bad, but I'm trying not to stress out, but it's very difficult right now. Come on in. The doors are open. We're ready to help you. Kathy Nix is the program director for San Antonio Coalition for Life. The anti-abortion group celebrated the Supreme Court's decision a year ago. Nix says they're working to help women with unplanned pregnancies find resources. You need those funds. Let's go find them for you. Nick says Texas is also stepping up to help parents who are struggling. The legislature recently boosted funding for the state's Alternatives to Abortions program. It's meant to provide resources and counseling. But whether or not this help will reach women like Anna, she's not sure. I mean, I don't have figures. I don't have numbers. You know, funding is a big thing, but poverty will always be there. Struggle is part of the human condition. Struggle is something Anna and Tony say they've had enough of. Their baby is due soon. Having um, the light at the end of the tunnel, I can't see it right now. Are you scared? You know what? I've never been scared before. I am. I've been a little worried. (laughs) I'm scared right now. Mostly, she says, she's scared for her children. Sometime around September, she'll have seven. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle in San Antonio. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next on WBWAR's Morning Edition. And coming up in about 15 minutes, we learn about the queer leaders who had a prominent role in Boston's suffragist movement. It's 829. R&B and neo-soul singer-songwriter Miranda Ray headlines the next Sound On Music Festival. It's this Friday at City Space. Get details and tickets at wbwar.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the first American production of the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play. This marvel of theatrical storytelling is an intimate saga about a family and a monumental expose of unbridled capitalism. Now through July 16th at the Huntington Theater, HuntingtonTheater.org. 
and JBS Home Inspections, with condo common area inspections, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston, jbsinspections.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with his foreign counterparts during an international conference in London today. Speaking at the gathering, Blinken focused his remarks on the eventual reconstruction of war-torn Ukraine. Recovery is about laying the foundation for Ukraine to thrive as a secure, independent country, fully integrated with Europe connected to markets around the world. Blinken also announced the U.S. will provide an additional $1.3 billion in additional aid for Ukraine. The chairman of the Federal Reserve will testify before Congress this week. Steve Beckner reports Jerome Powell will appear before both the House and Senate just days after the central bank decided to leave interest rates alone for the first time in 15 months. The Fed left the key federal funds rate unchanged last Wednesday, but Powell warned it will resume rate hikes if inflation stays high. Fed officials project higher rates but differ on how soon rates should be raised further and how high they should go. Powell could give clues this week when he goes before the House Financial Services Committee, then the Senate Banking Committee. That's Steve Beckner reporting. On Wall Street at this hour, Dow futures are trading lower. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Coast Guard in Boston says some noise has been detected in the search for a submersible missing in the North Atlantic. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports the noises were detected by Canadian search planes overnight. They've since sent in remote-operated underwater vehicles to explore the origin of the noises. Those ROVs haven't found anything yet, but the search continues this morning. Coast Guard officials say U.S. and Canadian planes and ships are combing a patch of water about the size of Connecticut. And they estimate that the submersible, if intact, has about a day's worth of oxygen left. Five people are inside that vehicle. The Mystic Generating Station in Everett is closing next summer. It's the region's largest fossil fuel power plant. The future of the facility that supplies the fuel for the plant is less certain. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports on the larger impact. If the Everett Marine Terminal closes next year with the plant, will other gas power plants in the region have enough fuel? Will the pipeline system that provides home heating to so many people in New England function properly? Richard Levitin is an independent energy consultant. He calls the terminal a hedge against potential future energy problems. And it's expensive to maintain that hedge. Whether the region has the appetite to write that check for the additional insurance is a question that has not been answered. Constellation Energy owns the terminal and the generating station. The company says it hasn't determined whether it's financially viable to keep the terminal open after the plant closes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Dozens of superintendents across the state are pushing lawmakers to make free school meals permanent. Districts statewide began offering free meals to all children during the pandemic. The state house included a permanent free meal program in its budget for next year. And both the Senate and governor have proposed extending free meals for another year in separate proposals. It's 833.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. Make it six wins in a row for the Red Sox. They beat the Twins 10-4 last night in Minneapolis. The two teams will play again tonight. A mix of sun and clouds today with high temperatures in the upper 60s. Those fall to the mid-50s tonight. It'll be mostly cloudy. Tomorrow, more clouds than sun and highs in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at UMA.com NPR. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. We're going to go back to a subject we've been focusing on a lot this week, the increasingly contentious relationship between the U.S. and China. When Chinese President Xi Jinping and Secretary of State Antony Blinken met earlier this week, one of the issues on the table was resuming contact between the two militaries after it was cut off in August last year. Blinken said he also addressed China's plans to build a military training facility in Cuba capable of spying on the U.S. I uh, made very clear that we would have deep concerns about uh, PRC intelligence or military uh, activities in Cuba. We're joined now by Warren Strobel. He is the national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal, who first reported on the Chinese base plan for Cuba. Good morning, Warren. Good morning. So the White House initially called your reporting inaccurate, but then confirmed the existence of Chinese intelligence facilities in Cuba, at least since 2019. What more can you tell us about this new facility that China plans to build? I think the main concern here, Michelle, is that uh, the facility could be, U.S. intelligence doesn't quite know what the plan is, but their concern is that it could be used as a building block to expand uh, China's military and intelligence um, presence on Cuba. And I think the important point here is this is part of a uh, project by China's People's Liberation Army called Project 141, where it is going around the world and trying to establish military bases and logistical support facilities in places like uh, Gabon, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Cambodia. Um, So at least from perspective of U.S. officials, it seems like China is sort of uh, extending this into the Western Hemisphere. And how does this complicate Washington's plans to try to stabilize the relationship when the U.S. um, and the administration knows, and now the public knows, that China's trying to, or at least we think they are trying to, increase spying miles off the coast? Yeah, I think it is just one more major irritant in a relationship that has already been um, troubled by, obviously, the Chinese spy balloon um, overflew the U.S. earlier this year. By uh, There have been uh, close encounters between our ships and planes, Chinese ships and planes. And, and I have to say, um, when we first reported this story about two weeks ago, the White House reaction was rather... Um, they were not happy, to say the least, because it came just as uh, Secretary Blinken was prepared to go to China and President Biden had said he was hoping for a thaw in relations. And uh, this was not the kind of news that they wanted out there. Hmm. As briefly as you can, do you think that, uh, well, what can you tell us about or what does your reporting indicate of what might have been accomplished on the secretary's recent trip to that end? Well, the Secretary Blinken did say that he raised this uh, this issue, um, as well as other irritants. And um, as he puts it, he feels like the relationship is stabilized a little bit. It had been in a downward spiral. 
Um, and uh, I think there are some agreements for further meetings, uh, high-level meetings between the U.S. and China, which is good. Uh, the one thing that the U.S. really sought was a reopening of military-to-military -military communication lines in order to avoid a, a misunderstanding that could lead to, um, you know, inadvertent conflict on the seas or in the skies, and the Chinese um, did not agree to that. So that was at least one point where, um, where Mr. Blinken did not have success yet. And why do you think that is? I mean, why do you think China is so reluctant to do that? It would seem that they would have as much at stake as the U.S. does. Yeah, that's a good point. There's a couple things. One, um, several years ago, the U.S. Treasury, I believe it was the U.S. Treasury, put sanctions on the individual who, at the time, he's now the defense minister of China. He wasn't at the time. And China says, you know, we're basically not going to talk to you. We're not going to meet with Defense Secretary Austin until you take the sanctions off. That's one thing. And secondly, I think traditionally the Chinese have been a little reluctant to engage in uh, deep military-to-military -military contacts. Okay. Um, because they, they feel like they don't want to give too much information away. Okay. That's Warren Strobel. He's the national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for sharing this reporting with us. Thank you for having me on, Michelle. More than one million people have lost their Medicaid coverage since April. It's part of something called Medicaid unwinding. And it's happening because states had to keep people enrolled in this insurance program for low-income people throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Those protections expired in March. From member station WLRN in Miami, Veronica Zaragovia reports that more than 205,000 of the disenrolled in Florida actually still qualify, and many are children. Most people who lost their Medicaid coverage in Florida didn't know they needed to submit paperwork to confirm their eligibility. Shirley Dominguez helps people get insured through her job as a navigator with Epilepsy Alliance Florida. She says that's why the Department of Children and Families, or DCF, purged a lot of people from its Medicaid rules. They couldn't verify a home address. They couldn't verify the household size, or they couldn't verify a phone number. Dominguez worries about those who are now uninsured but still qualify while this gets straightened out. People that have multiple illnesses have been dropped. People that are disabled have been dropped just because of these procedural errors. Allison Yeager directs the Florida Health Justice Project. If we're seeing 80% of terminations were procedural, there's something wrong. She spoke at a recent conference in Central Florida on this topic known as the Medicaid unwinding. Let's pause and figure out what's not working and proceed when we're ready and sure that the damage is going to be significantly less. The Biden administration has sent letters to governors urging states to take another month and do more outreach to Medicaid recipients losing their coverage. A spokesperson for Florida DCF said the state has sent text messages, emails, and snail mail, and also called people to alert them. Nonprofits and advocates say DCF is understaffed and its employees are working hard to help, but they say the outreach has fallen short. Almost 1 million Floridians are falling into a new post-COVID Medicaid cancellation. If you don't act now, you may lose your health care coverage completely. But ¿Sabías que tu cobertura médica podría estar por terminar? The Epilepsy Alliance Florida sponsored these radio commercials to help. Vanessa Brito, a community activist in Miami, posts tutorial videos on her Facebook page, which has 33,000 followers. And I wanted to just give you an easy, quick tutorial on how to figure it out on your own if I'm not available or I don't see your comments or questions. People post requests for help on her page. I'm getting people that are either going to the doctor 
or going to the pharmacy to pick up their refill for a medication, and they're being told, oh, well, your, your Medicaid is no longer active. One of her followers on Facebook, Melissa, asked us not to use her last name. She worries speaking on this could affect her employment. She lives near Cape Canaveral, and her children recently lost Medicaid. She says she never heard from DCF about it. I just happened to know to look because Vanessa had posted something. Melissa's daughter needs expensive medication for diabetes. Her son has a condition that causes an erratic heartbeat. Melissa works a contract job in nursing that has no benefits, but gives her flexible hours in case her son needs hospitalization. She's frustrated with the time it's taking to get this fixed. Does it seem fair for the working people who are barely getting by? It doesn't. And then you take away the one thing that they need healthcare. How are we going to be healthy enough to continue working? Florida officials have not yet said if they will be pausing the Medicaid unwinding. That's Veronica Zaragovia on NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, with layoffs on the rise, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the future of America's post-pandemic labor market. Partly sunny and upper 60s today, overcast and mid-50s tonight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and mid-60s. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Union workers at Encore Boston Harbor will vote today on whether or not to authorize a strike. Their previous contract with the Everett Casino Resort expired in April. Union Representative Ava Wade says the Encore workers are seeking equal pay. All of our hotels contracts have the same wage rates from, you know, a five-star with Colton to a three-star Marriott, they all have the same wages. So we're below those at Encore right now. We're also below the win at Encore wages in Las Vegas. Encore Boston Harbor tells WBUR it has been bargaining in good faith with the union since March. It says it's disappointed in the union's decision to move forward with a strike vote. Wilmington-based Analog Devices is planning major renovations for two of its buildings in Chelmsford. The chipmaker says the upgrades will lead to the creation of more than 100 jobs. The Boston Globe reports the $71 million projects include expanded lab space and equipment upgrades. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. It's Pride Month, and today we wanted to remember some of the queer people in Massachusetts history who've been overlooked. Author Wendy Rouse unearthed the stories of local queer suffragettes in her book, Public Faces, Secret Lives, A Queer History of the Suffrage Movement. And Wendy joins me now. Thanks so much for being here. 
Thank you for inviting me. To start out, could you tell us about some of the prominent queer suffragists from Boston? One of my favorites was uh, Margaret Foley. Foley was a suffragist from a working class Irish American family in Boston. And she had actually worked in a hat factory and became a labor organizer and then eventually joins the Massachusetts Women's Suffrage Association, where they hire her to actually speak and become an organizer throughout the country. They called her the great heckler because she would stand up to politicians who were speaking on the street often and would interrupt them in the middle of a speech and ask them why they didn't support women's suffrage. So she kind of became a little suffrage celebrity. And of course, this meant that she had a lot of fans and a lot of suitors. There were many men who flirted with her, but she refused to marry. But on the campaign trail, working for the suffrage campaign, she had a friend named Helen Goodnow who volunteered to work alongside Foley. And they spent much time together. They roomed together as they traveled across the country. And after that, Goodnow writes to her family that she's just absolutely enamored with Foley and loves spending time with her and, you know, just loves her. And they end up spending the rest of their lives together. They actually move in and they spend uh, nearly 40 years together living in Boston until Foley passes away in 1957. Angelina Weld was a Black suffragist and a writer whose work called attention not only to women's rights, but to racial inequality. And she actually is most well-known as a writer, as a poet, whose work becomes emblematic of the Harlem Renaissance. But less well-known is the fact that she had many private poems that were never published. These were never published because they reflect her queer desire, her sexual desires for women. And she kept those concealed probably because it would you know, reflect poorly on her family and community at the time. Uh, they talk about wanting to kiss other women, and they're just beautiful love poems. And you found that some women in Massachusetts, they found ways to have what we would call domestic partnerships now. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Boston is perhaps most well-known for Boston marriages, which was a term that was used to describe a coupling of two women um, who chose not to marry men, but instead to pursue a life together. And this was uh, quite common in the New England area, in part because of the large number of women's colleges. And it also was very common among women who had romantic relationships, who chose to spend the rest of their lives together in a coupling in that way. What did it take to unearth the histories of these queer Bostonians? And why don't you think those stories have been told? I think this history is hard to recover, in part because it has been so uh, covered up by the queer suffragists themselves who were afraid that their, if their relationships were revealed, it might damage their career, damage their reputation in the community. So they, they sometimes destroyed their letters. And oftentimes it was later people, writers, biographers, family members, who destroyed any evidence of the queer lives of these suffragists out of either fear or shame or homophobia. What other challenges did these queer suffragists face here in New England? I think just in general, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of acceptance for gender nonconformity or for relationships other than heterosexual relationships. So that was a constant challenge is trying to to live in a way that allowed them to to live their queer lives freely in a society that was predominantly cisgender and heterosexual. And we see that even today, right? We see this constant challenge. And so I hope that like this helps build some compassion and understanding for that because LGBTQ rights are currently under attack. Um, people are trying to erase the existence of gay and trans people in our present. But I think it's important 
that history reminds us that there have always been LGBTQ people and they will always exist. Wendy Rouse is the author of Public Faces, Secret Lives, A Queer History of the Suffrage Movement. Thank you so much for joining us, Wendy. Thank you for having me. Here with WBOR, coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have a conversation with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky about his country's counteroffensive against the Russian invasion, plus a look at the severe drought affecting Portugal. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, photography from the Black Atlantic. This compelling compilation of works explores black identity, community, and power. On view now. More at PEM.org. Like many states, Mississippi passed an abortion ban last year, meaning some Mississippi parents are having children whom they didn't feel ready to raise. She knew that she wanted a lot more financial stability. She wanted a lot of things in her life to be different before she had a second child. One Woman's Story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Rescuers are continuing their search for a submersible missing in the Atlantic Ocean after detecting noises they say may be signs of life. Islands in the eastern Caribbean are preparing for torrential rain and flooding as Tropical Storm Brett gets closer. And the Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified documents is due in federal court today. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. Upper 60s today under partly sunny skies. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston. Some warning signs out in the global economy. Warning signs for us. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at UiPath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Unisys, whose app modernization cloud solutions helps businesses create new cloud-native apps to unlock powerful insights and optimized performance. Unisys, keep breaking through. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Will we or won't we get a recession? When will it happen? How bad would it be? Those have been some of the big economic debates in this country for a year now. So far, recession has not materialized, but... Looking outside the U.S., some nations are already there. Marketplace's Lily Jamali has more. Among developed economies, New Zealand and Germany have both officially tipped into recessions. Consumers in those nations have been dealing with rising prices and central bank efforts to beat inflation back by raising interest rates. ING chief economist Karsten Brzezewski says Germany is Europe's largest economy, so its troubles can have real impacts on U.S. goods and services. If Germany and also the entire Eurozone is in a recession or at best stagnation, it means there will be less demand coming out of Europe. 
Expect less demand from China, too, Brzezinski says. While it's not officially in a recession, an economic rebound following the end of pandemic lockdowns still hasn't happened. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. The legislature of New York has passed a bill to ban non-compete agreements. This is where your job tells you you cannot work for any competitors for a while after you leave. The agreements are in principle meant to protect company secrets, but they have been used even in service industries like restaurants and can complicate the job search for workers. Somewhere between 28 and 47 percent of workers in the U.S. private sector are bound by these agreements. New York's bill still needs to be signed by the governor. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down four-tenths of a percent. Dow S&P and NASDAQ futures also down in the two to three-tenths percent range with the Dow future down 83 points. Ten-year Treasury yield is at 3.752%. The European Chamber of Commerce surveyed 570 international companies about doing business in China. Two-thirds said it's become more difficult, and many are shifting investments and their Asian headquarters outside of that country as their confidence falls. Companies said they are worried about security controls, government protection given to Chinese rivals, and rising costs. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly Business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. And by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Layoffs are on the rise, but odds are America's post-pandemic tight labor market is here to stay. One reason for that is that our population is aging, so the total supply of workers is going to grow more slowly. So what happens when you have a tight labor market for a long time? Well, it starts to affect the relationship between managers and workers, for starters. A remote corner of the U.S. near the Canadian border offers some insight. That is where Marketplace's senior economics contributor Chris Farrell went to kick off his series, A Hot Job Market, Where It's Cold as Hell. There's a number of successful companies in the area and all competing for a great labor pool. Dave Doherty is president of DigiKey Electronics. It's a privately held global electronics distributor based in Thief River Falls, Minnesota, a town of 9,000 people. DigiKey was founded in 1972 by an amateur radio enthusiast. DigiKey is now a $5 billion revenue giant with operations around the world. But we've learned some things, and one of the things that DigiKey's always done is, is cross-train folks. And there are lots of jobs to train for. DigiKey's headquarters is a mega warehouse with a footprint of more than 22 football fields. DigiKey invests in its 3,600 workers and their individual needs. DigiKey can be whatever you need it to be. For some, it's a place of stability. Their life is, is crazy. Maybe they're a single parent or you know, taking care of an elderly parent, and they just want to come pl- someplace and do an honest day's work and be compensated fairly for that. Others don't want to be doing the same job in six months. They want to continue to be uh, progress on their career. Did I mention that winters are very long and very cold in Thief River Falls? Yet there are a number of large companies in the region. Recruiting workers is an incremental process. Retaining workers is key. So being flexible and um, 
adaptable in your solutions with staffing. Kelly Roth is head of human resources at the Polaris Snowmobile Factory and its 1,400 workers in Rosso, a Minnesota town of some 3,000 that's even farther north. Maybe the ideal fit is to have five full-time regular hires, but you can't get those five, so you might have 10 part-time hires to meet that need. And the flexibility there of being able to shift those people into your workforce and to have a more agile and nimble workforce that can move around and to do various roles versus highly specialized and only able to work in this one area. To cope with slow growth in the area's labor force while continuing to expand, DigiKey and Polaris invest in worker skills, encourage employees to change jobs internally, and embrace flexible schedules. The same goes for Marvin Windows in Warroad, Minnesota, a town of 1,800 people. Warroad is home to the fourth-generation family-owned company and its 2,800 employees at headquarters and factory. Jobs at these anchor companies come with good pay and benefits. Bridget Tuck, Senior Economic Impact Analyst at the University of Minnesota Extension, says management has learned the importance of developing career paths to retain workers and their families. To get people from sort of entry-level positions to our more skilled positions and kind of keep them in our communities and moving through that, that pipeline. Not bad. Sustained low unemployment in these northern towns can boost wages, improve benefits, strengthen job ladders, and extend careers. That was Marketplace Senior Economics contributor Chris Farrell. We will hear more from Chris this week, and you can catch the whole series at Marketplace.org. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. For more information, visit bu.edu met. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.